2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Paul writes, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. What happens to a church? When a person is causing division, creating strife, stirring trouble, does the church have a remedy? How is the church to exercise discipline or correction or restoration? Now, so far in this chapter, we've seen Paul's tears in verses 1 through 4. And now... Paul will deal with a transgressor in verses 5 through 11. And later in the chapter, we're going to see Paul's triumph. The passage begins with a profile of the offender. Look at verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Paul seems to be making reference to an incident that caused problems, created trouble, grief and division in the church. And one of the things we need to notice right from the start is the level of grace and compassion and consideration that Paul shows. Paul doesn't mention either the name of the offender and he doesn't mention the nature of the offense, which creates In the minds of a lot of Bible teachers, the problem, well, what's he making reference to? Who is Paul talking about? Paul might be making reference to the man mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, who was accused of some kind of incestuous relationship. Paul makes the reference to a person who is having relations with his father's wife, which under the best of circumstances means a stepmother, as creepy as that is. But the the Bible doesn't say exactly what's going on. It might have been someone else who had committed some other kind of wrong against Paul or who was causing harm in the fellowship. It may have been the person who was the ringleader who said, Paul is not sincere. Paul is divided. Paul isn't a real apostle. Whatever else, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man was living in open sin. And because he was living in open sin, it was creating problems for the entire church. 
And so Paul counseled the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to call the church together and to dismiss the man from the fellowship. He didn't say, take one, confront him, take another, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to repent, kick him out. He just simply says, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. He has to go. Get rid of him now, right now. And so people wonder what is going on. Some people think that the church should never judge. But the Bible doesn't say that. I know some people who are familiar with Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, they say, remember what the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, for with the measure you judge, it will be judged to you. But the Bible also says that we are obligated to judge truth from error. We are obligated to judge right from wrong. We are obligated... Not from a personal standpoint, but from a corporate standpoint to judge sinners in the church. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Another group of people that were called to consider are people who embrace false versions of Christianity were to confront them. Both Jesus in Matthew 18 and Paul in the New Testament says that we are to judge unrepentant sinners in the church, those that violate the integrity of the church, and this part is important, and those who refuse to repent. This isn't a problem who's a person who's struggling with an issue. Or is dealing with a problem. It seems to be a person who is creating division and disorder and problems. And in Matthew chapter 18, for those of you who are familiar with Matthew chapter 18. Matter of fact, we might just turn there really quick. Just as a refresher. Jesus in speaking on how to deal with problems basically said... In the context of forgiveness, he said, Woe to the world because of offenses in verse 7, for offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom they come. And then in verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. As the cycle unfolds, Jesus says, Look, If somebody has sinned, go to them and remind them how this sin has created tension and problems and division in your friendship and your fellowship and your relationship. If the person says, I haven't hurt you and I haven't harmed you and I haven't done anything wrong and and there's no no issue between us. The Bible says you bring another person to confirm the facts and the circumstances. The whole point being you talk to them because you value their friendship and their fellowship and their relationship. And you bring someone to confirm the things that are going on because you value the friendship and the relationship. And the, the, the cycle seems to be that if the person doesn't care about you and doesn't care what the Bible says and doesn't care what the church says, 
then you're to treat them like an unbeliever. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because if a person says, I don't care about you, and I don't care what the Bible says, and I don't care what the church says. If a person doesn't care about you and doesn't care what the Bible says and doesn't care what the church says, does that sound like a person who's a believer? Because apparently believers care about each other. Their friendship and their fellowship matter. The believer cares about what the word of God says. The the Bible says that the believer cares about the unity of the saints and the preservation of peace. And so, we sometimes think of divisions and disturbances and the church as the one thing that God says, you know, it's a church. You you should expect people to fight with one another. But again, as, as crazy as this might seem to some of you, disturbing the peace of the church or viol- or sin that violates the integrity of the church matters it matters to god so offenders are to be dealt with in order to free people to minister without the hindrance of the controversy and remember what we've already been learning in second corinthians that because paul is the center and the source of conflict and controversy it means that he's become an ineffective minister Offenders need to be dealt with. Why? Not simply for their sakes and for the church's sakes, but for the ministry's sake. So does the church, as you go through that process and you read Matthew 18, and the Bible says, treat them like they're an unbeliever. Does that mean that they are an unbeliever? No. Does the church get to determine who's saved and who's not? No. Jesus does. But you see, when you're in a circumstance where the person says, I reject you and I reject the Bible and I reject the church. You're you're placing the person in an uncomfortable position. Well, if you talk like an unbeliever and you act like an unbeliever and you speak like an unbeliever and you you accept all the things that an unbeliever accepts and you reject all the things that a believer accepts, then I, I don't have any choice. Now, does that mean you treat them badly? I don't think so. I think what it means is you treat them, hey, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Do you realize that Jesus is the Lord and that he can save you and forgive you? And they go, will you stop talking to me like I'm not a Christian? But you've already said that you don't care what I think and you don't care what the Bible says and you don't care what the church says. So I... I was just under the assumption that maybe you didn't know him and, and love him. So here, that's part of the point. Now, again, in Matthew 18, Jesus seems to outline what we might call due process. And with due process, you want to avoid superficial judgments. You want to avoid hypocritical judgments. You want to avoid unjust judgments. You want to avoid presumptuous judgments. And by the way, unjust judgments are those that are based on appearance. An unjust judgment is you come into a circumstance and you look at it and for all intents and purposes, it looks bad. We are only to go forward when we have evidence. Of wrongdoing, not mystical intuition, 
If a person says, I just think that that person, every time I'm around them, they make me feel awkward. Is that the basis of judgment? I don't think so. Presumptuous judgments are those in which we're simply not competent to judge. A presumptuous judgment is a person who implies that they know what's going on inside of you when in fact they don't. How can they? And so the Bible says we're to avoid hypocritical judgments. We're to avoid presumptuous judgments. And again, let me be blunt. A presumptuous judgment is a judgment in which we are not competent to render a decision. Paul warns that there's certain kinds of things that are not to be litmus tests for Christian fellowship. Paul warns about those who would make food or drinks or holidays or feast days the measure of who gets to be in and who gets to be out. So Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to draw the conclusion that the discipline was merely a matter of personal injury. That Paul says, this guy really hurt me, and so guess what? We're going to have to deal with him because, after all, I'm God's anointed, and don't touch God's anointed. That's not what's happening. As a matter of fact, remember the word translated grief and grieved are the same root words translated heaviness and sorrow in verses 1 through 4. The last time we were together, I said the noun is lipe, the verb is lipeo. The New American Standard translates it to make heavy, to make sorrow, or to make sorrowful. And so when he says, but if anyone has caused sorrow, heavy sorrow or grief. Now, he says not to be too severe. Now, this is an interesting word in the original language. Epi is the prefix. Bareo is the root word. It's used here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. Epi, bareo, means to put an enormous burden or to be burdensome. Art and Gingrich say that it's in the original language it says hina. Me, epi, borrow. It seems to mean in order to heap up too great a burden of words. Or in order not to say too much. Although there are no other examples of it, of it meaning this, some of the possibilities might be to exaggerate or to be severe. The New International Version probably captures the meaning. I think the NIV says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Apparently, that was the point. Not all the people perceived the problem in the same way. And so Paul's saying, but of all of you, to some extent, the idea being some of you are grieved, some are you, of, of you are not grieved. The implication being, this seems to matter to some of you, but it doesn't seem to matter to all of you. And this is the key. When you have a problem, or you have an issue, or you have a division, 
where you have a fight. There are two groups of people. This doesn't matter or this matters a whole, whole lot. And so that's part of the point that Paul is making. And remember, we've already talked about why it matters, because sin matters, because sin divides friendship and fellowship and relationship. And that's part of the point that he seems to be making. So, in a sense, here's what Paul is saying. When there's fights, when there's disagreements, when there's issues that have to be settled... How are we to give appropriate attention to the matter? At what point is church discipline necessary? Now let me give you just a big broad principle. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. You all know that. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It means that when you love someone, you put up with a whole lot from them. At what point do you go, hmm, we have to draw a line in the sand? And I'm going to suggest to you that you draw the line in the sand when something is said or something that is done that fundamentally changes your outlook or your opinion about that person. And that means, guess what? We have to deal with this. Because something's been said or something that has been done that is so grievous, it's so egregious, it's so wrong that we have to deal with it. And so Paul writes in verse 6, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. The implication being that whoever this person was and whatever group punishment was given, he's had enough. The word translated punishment, epi, Tamea, only here in the New Testament, comes from the root word epitameo. And even though what that basically means, it, it had the original meaning to heap honor on someone. In other words, we have a saying in our culture, in our society, give him what he deserves. Now, again, when we use the term give him what he deserves, Some people deserve justice. Some people deserve mercy. Some people deserve whatever. So here's, here's what it came to mean. It came to mean to render what is due. Due measure. Censure. Or rebuke. And so... In the ancient world, some have suggested that it became a technical term to describe a group censure or discipline. When the president of the United States commits high crimes and misdemeanors, there is a process that the Constitution allows for called impeachment. In other words, can a single congressman or a single senator or an American citizen impeach the president? The answer is no. In order to impeach the president, different branches of the Congress have to collectively agree that that something is so heinous that it has to be dealt with. And that's part of the point here. Part of the point of the passage is that the group agreed upon a course of action. 
The idea being collectively as a church, they decided that this is the way that we're going to deal with the problem. Now, again, here's the idea. In this instance, the punishment or discipline may have included excommunication. Whatever it was, and it seems like it was excommunication, it produced genuine repentance. And genuine repentance included restoration to the Lord. And so here is the idea. Whatever this person did, and however they did it, and how collectively the judgment was made, something changed inside of his heart. And something changed inside of his mind. He began to understand that friendship and fellowship with the Lord can't be divided from friendship and fellowship with each other. And just a quick word about repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. Remember, the word is metanoia, and it means to change your mind or change your attitude. The idea specifically is that you change your mind and your attitude concerning sin and righteousness. So repentance, it it, it means, you know, I I was thinking that this isn't a big deal. Or I I was thinking that I didn't do anything wrong. or, Or I was thinking that the Bible doesn't really have anything to say about this. And guess what? I'm beginning to understand something that my sin matters and our friendship and our fellowship matters and God's word matters and the way that we care for one another and minister to one another and provide for one another matters. So the idea is that you change your mind in regard to sin and righteousness. Paul put it this way in First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. The saints did three things. They turned from the sinful behavior. They turned to the Lord. Three things. Away from the sin. Towards the Lord. With joy. Joy, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of behavior to serve him. The Lord saves us in our sin and then saves us from our sin. So again, repentance means a change of mind and heart and and behavior. So now Paul tells the Corinthians, look, this man has had enough. There's no need to prolong the discipline. Let me give you another example. Imagine a pastor does something really wrong. He betrays his marriage. And he betrays his church. And he gets right with God. And he gets right with his wife. And the Lord forgives him because he's repented really, truly. His wife forgives him because he's repented truly. And the church doesn't forgive him. Now, if you've offended God. And God is satisfied with what's happened and your wife is satisfied with what happens. Is it possible that there's going to be a group of people who are not satisfied with what has happened? There there is that possibility. But here's part of the point. 
that in biblical reality, we have tools that we're supposed to employ when we hurt one another or when we do wrong to one another. We as Christians have the ability to confess our sin and extend forgiveness to one another and experience restoration and relationship and, and fellowship. You've heard me say it only takes one person to forgive. But it takes two people to be reconciled. Do you remember you before you were saved? Do you remember how you would go by the cross of Jesus and you would look at Jesus on the cross and you would go, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for being the savior. Thanks for dying for my sin. Thanks for being there for me. And then you went and lived your life in rebellion and disobedience to him. When Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is the forgiveness that Jesus extends to human beings real? The answer is yes. But in order to experience restoration, reunion, reconciliation, it takes two people. It takes someone pausing by the cross of Calvary, getting down on your knees and looking up and saying, my sin has placed you there. And I'm sorry for my sin. And I'm so sorry for my sin that I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you and I want to love you and I want to follow you and I want to be with you. You see, it only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. So Paul tells the Corinthians, this man has had enough. You know, some churches make exact and specific rules. You belong to a church. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't smoke and you can't chew and you can't go with those that do. But then they start to add to the list. And usually the list is a laundry list of of movies that you can and can't see, books that you can and can't see. It's this or that or this or that. In the 16th, 17th and 18th century, do you realize That in the view of the church, if you were considered disreputable, if you ditched church, if you said, I'm not going to go to church because, you know, something really good is on or the, the Broncos are in the playoffs or whatever, you could be disciplined. You could be disciplined for neglecting or refusing to contribute to the church. Do you realize that prior to the Civil War, 2% of all Baptists were every year kicked out of the church for violating rules and regulations? Alan Redpath said about membership in church, 5% don't exist, 10% can't be found, 25% don't attend, 50% show up on Sunday, 75% never go to a prayer meeting, 90% never have family worship, 95% of the people in the church have never shared the gospel with a single human being. So how far do you take it? There are lots of reasons to to not practice discipline. Because you don't know where to draw the line. Because you don't want to be vindictive. Remember what it says in Romans 12. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Corrective church discipline can never be done in a mean-spirited way because you've been personally offended. But the idea is that something is happening that is deeply divisive, that is creating a problem within the church as a whole. The Bible says, like I said, Love covers a multitude of sin. So when do you discipline? Again, I'm going to suggest to you when the behavior is egregious, divisive, unrepentant, harmful to the body and the cause of Christ. And it means that something has to be done. Now, here's the problem, and I think all of you know the problem. Is it possible that discipline can morph into abuse? Let me give you examples. Is it wrong for a government in order to protect citizens to punish wrongdoers? I don't think that that's wrong. But if you cut their head off on YouTube, do you think that's a little over the top? In other words, is it possible that discipline can morph into abuse? In government settings, in family settings, in church settings. Do families have the right to discipline their children? And should they? Yes. If a family refuses to discipline children, who suffers? Everyone. But can discipline morph into abuse? The answer is yes. So whatever the Bible is talking about, when it's talking about church discipline, it's not talking about abusive behavior on the part of leadership to members of a church with some sort of special agenda or preferential treatment or humiliating kinds of discipline that doesn't have the net effect of bringing about repentance and restoration in the, in, in the circumstance. People are not required to measure up to the whims and wishes of even well-meaning people. But it's completely appropriate for God to require from us as Christians to reflect his love and reflect his character. And by the way, if the conversation doesn't begin that way, then probably something's not right. So, do you kick the worship leader out because he chooses the wrong song? No, that's probably over the top. Do you kick somebody out of the church because they're having a bad time? Or they're depressed? I heard the story today of a man on his way to work. He gets in this horrible car accident. He finally makes it to work. He loses his job. He has to take a bus home. He finds his wife being unfaithful. He is so overcome. He decides to go to a bar. And he orders a drink. And a big, tough biker guy comes by. And he picks up the drink and he shoots it down. And he puts it on the bar. And he says, you going to do something about it? 
You, you, you want to punch me? And the man puts his hands in his face and he says, look, I, I really have had a bad day. I got in a car accident earlier. I lost my job. I went home only to find that my wife is unfaithful. And I quite literally came to this bar to try and get one drink in order to work up enough courage to kill myself. And that's why I put the cyanide capsule in the drink. But enough about me. How are you doing? It's all about perspective. And so we have to remind ourselves that the purpose is always to restore the offender. Look what it says in verse 7. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now, I want you to think about this. So then on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Is Paul suggesting forgiveness and comfort apart from repentance? No. Is he talking about forgiveness and comfort from a person whose mind and heart and attitude and willingness and submission has taken place? That seems to be the idea. And so Paul says, forgive him, strengthen him, welcome him back into fellowship. And this becomes part of the key. Discipline and correction, in order to be effective, should lead to forgiveness and restoration. Why forgive? Because remember, forgiveness is the road that leads to restoration. The forgiveness blesses the man. So now think about this. Is the man who's restored, does he have a new life? Yes, because he has friendship and fellowship with the saints. Are the saints different? Yes, because unity has been restored. What about the mission of the church? If we're not fighting with each other, are we free now to do those things that Jesus asks us to do? Which is more helpful, to fight with each other or to minister to the poor, to the homeless, to the sick, to the unbeliever? Does it make sense to use our mental, emotional, and spiritual, and financial resources to hurt one another or to help people. This makes sense to you, I'm hoping. There is no church where forgiveness does not exist. Do you know why you get to be a saint? Because Jesus has forgiven you. Do you know why we collectively get to gather together and worship the Lord? Because collectively we've been forgiven in Christ. And so Paul forgives the man. And look what Paul says for the sake of Christ. So Paul says, look, forgive him for his sake. Look again, forgive him for your sake. Forgive him again for the mission's sake. Forgive him again for Christ's sake. And he adds something else. In order not to give a place or an advantage to Satan. Here's what he says. Unforgiveness gives Satan inappropriate advantage. And here, here's the idea. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Here's the risk of unforgiveness. 
If they don't forgive, there's the risk or the danger that the man might be swallowed up in sorrow or despair. The man might not appreciate or understand the reality of his forgiveness. And by the way, for those people who do not understand or appreciate the reality of their forgiveness, there can be this sense of discouragement, despair, depression. Why should I go to church? Why should I be there? I've already told you the story about the guy who wakes up and his wife says, Get up! I don't want to get up. Time to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Why don't you want to go to church? Because everybody hates me. Everybody doesn't hate you. Nobody loves me. Everybody loves you. Time to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Why? Because I I don't want to go. Why do I have to go? Because you're the pastor. Yeah, you saw that coming. You go, I, I knew that was coming. Sorrow. Heaviness. Pain. Guilt. No wonder Paul writes in verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now think about what you just read. How do you remedy the problem? Confirm your love. How? By opening your heart, by opening your arms, by receiving him back with joy and tenderness. And so the purpose of discipline is to strengthen the church and its mission. Because look, it says in, in verse 9, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. What's Paul saying? Do you remember when I wrote to you First Corinthians? In part, I wrote that book to you to put you to the test. What test is that? To see whether or not you would be obedient to the Lord and you would be obedient to his word. Does it shock you or surprise you that every once in a while you're put to the test? Does it shock you or surprise you that every once in a while you'll read the Bible and you'll swallow hard and you'll say, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And then you have to make some adjustments. You have to make some accommodations as you begin to understand that the way you used to live as an unbeliever, the way that you used to live in darkness and estrangement from God, the way that you used to live is not the way that you're called to live. You are a Christian. You've been made new by the Holy Spirit. God has placed his spirit inside of your heart and the love of Jesus Christ inside of your heart. And that's part of what Paul is saying. The discipline provided the opportunity to see whether or not the church would be obedient to the word of God that was ministered to them by the Apostle Paul. Well, he hurt me. Did it ever occur to you that that maybe this becomes the perfect opportunity to see whether or not you're going to respond like a Christian? No, that's not what I had in mind. I was listening to a very famous, not totally famous, but somewhat famous ministry leader who you would know his name. 
And he was in a parking lot. And somebody went speeding through the parking lot at about 40 miles an hour. And this guy felt it was his Christian duty to go after this guy and pull him over and tell him how that wasn't cool. And the guy gets out of his car and he's a, it's not me. He, this guy's well over six feet tall. The guy was a very little guy and he saw that the guy was wearing a suit and he goes, oh, I see you just got out of church. Oh. And the guy got back into his car and he realized that being a Christian means being a Christian. It means praying for those who curse you. It's blessing those who curse you. It's praying for those who despitefully use you. It means that you are going to respond in a different way. You're going to respond like what the Bible says to respond. And now Paul would have them take the steps necessary to create a path for restoration. And he talks about cultivating the forgiving spirit. Look in verse 10. It says, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. We might might have some problems understanding the idiom. But in verse 10, Phillips translates this verse this way. If you will forgive a certain person, rest assured that I forgive him too. Insofar as I had anything personally to forgive, I do forgive him as if we're all standing before Christ. And so a person hurts his wife or his, his, her husband or neighbor or friend. And the pastor says, more than just shake hands, confess your sin to one another, be reconciled in your relationship with one another. And the people look at the pastor and they say, well, are you mad at us? Do you hate us? Are you upset with us? Are you disappointed with us? And do you remember mom and dad when your child would come to you and they would they've done something really wrong? Can you imagine your child saying to you, do you hate me? Does this mean we won't have the same relationship we had before? This is in in, in part what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, if the person has gotten right with the Lord, if the person has gotten right with you, why in the world should I create a hardship and a pain and withhold forgiveness in circumstances like this? And look what else Paul says. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that he is in complete fellowship with the Corinthians. He, in effect, is saying when you forgive them I forgive them. If he has anything to forgive at all, he does forgive it for the sake of the Corinthians. Now, remember, he said, I've done it for the sake of Jesus. I've done it for your sake. And now he says in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Does Satan love to divide a family and destroy it? Does Satan love to divide a church and destroy it? 
Does Satan love to divide a community and destroy it? Does Satan love to divide a nation and destroy it? That's his business. He's in the business of division. And so when Paul says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, there are two dangers. When a church refuses to discipline, when the church doesn't exercise forgiveness and restoration, if a church doesn't allow true repentance and friendship and fellowship and restoration to take place, they're giving them the opportunity for Satan to come in and to wreak havoc. As a matter of fact, remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't give a place to the devil. Ephesians 6.10 and 11. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand or to stand against the wiles of the devil. 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks or prowls, seeking whomever he may desire. Whom resist? Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. If the church fails to discipline, Satan mocks and exposes churches who tolerate sin and worse, celebrate sin. See how open minded we are? See how inclusive we are? You know what? We want to be open-minded and we want to be inclusive, but we don't want to be so open-minded that we allow sin to take hold and divide the body. If a church does discipline, Satan attempts to overwhelm and embitter the person who in fact experiences true sorrow and true repentance when the church refuses to restore that person. And so here's part of the point. Part of the point is like a a parent who has to discipline a child. When a parent disciplines a child, is it possible that a parent can hear a voice whisper in his or her ear, you know, if you discipline that child, that child is going to hate you forever. You hear the voice, but you hear the other voice saying, Correct the child. Discipline the child while you have the opportunity. And the rod of instruction chases away foolishness. You know what? No child ever died, ever, from godly, Christ-honoring discipline. And no person who has experienced church discipline, who understands the deep problem that sin causes and the wonderful provision that fellowship provides would ever resist church discipline. Someone said, if Satan cannot destroy by fornication, he will try by the unmeasured sorrow following repentance. Remember, Satan's trying to divide the church. Satan means adversary. 
And by the way, he's called the evil one in Ephesians 6.16, Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15, the serpent, 2 Corinthians 11.3, the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And the reason why I bring this up is because later on in our study, as we, we do more and more examination of who this person Satan is, we'll, we'll begin to understand. Because look what Paul writes, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's noema. It's found five times in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2.11. 2 Corinthians 3.14. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 11.3. It's always translated in the King James, mind, device, thought. It carries the idea of purpose. So when it's good, it's design. And when it's bad, plot or scheme. As a matter of fact, in later studies, we will explore this because remember, Satan, when it says we're not ignorant of his devices, well, is it possible that some of us are? What does Satan attack? He attacks our mind like he did with Eve. He attacks the body like Job. He attacks the will like David. He attacks the heart and the conscience like Joshua. His weapons are lies and suffering and pride and accusation. And Satan desires that we be ignorant of God's will, impatient with God's will, act in a way independent of God's will, or experience indictment by God's will. That means... We understand what God wants, and we're convicted by what God wants, and then we refuse to do what God wants, but we're not left defenseless. We're inspired by the Word of God. We experience grace by the Son of God and the Spirit of God, and we experience intercession by both the Son and the Spirit about our circumstance. So, just very briefly, I want to conclude in the in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Mark Deaver gives five reasons why it's a good idea for churches to practice discipline. Number one, for the good of the person being disciplined. Number two, for the good of other Christians as they see the dangers of sin. Do you remember if, for those of you who are moms and dads who had more than one child? If the oldest child gets disciplined, should it be reasonable that the youngest child will be disciplined? Is it? Are you hoping that when you discipline one child, the rest of the children are looking and going, wow, mom and dad aren't going to let him get away with that? Number three, for the health of the church as a whole. Number four, for the corporate witness of the church. In other words... Is it important that our church have a reputation for honesty, integrity, or hypocrisy and inconsistency? So if you go to this church and you're in jail and people say, hey, where do you go to church? Don't, don't say Calvary. No, I'm just teasing, unless you're there for reasons that make perfect sense that you should be in jail. (laughs) And number five, for the glory of God as we reflect His holiness. Let me say it again. 
Number one, for the good of the person, discipline. Number two, for the good of the other Christians as they see the danger of sin. Number three, for the health of the church as a whole. Number four, for the corporate witness of the church. Number five, for the glory of God as we reflect his holiness. So what kind of a church will we be? John Dagg writes, when discipline leaves a church, so does Jesus. We're called to be Christians, to live our lives in a way that reflects the love of Jesus and the character of Jesus. So what will happen if we don't discipline? Well, the same thing that happens in your home or your neighbor's home when they refuse to discipline their children. It's the same thing that happens in a culture when cultures refuse to discipline their citizens. In a poem entitled, What Will the Harvest Be? Listen to what it says. Sowing the seed by the wayside high. Sowing the seed on the rocks to die. Sowing the seed where the thorns will spoil. Sowing the seed in the fertile soil. Sowing the seed with an aching heart. Sowing the seed while the teardrops start. Sowing in hope till the reapers come. Gladly to gather The harvest home. Oh, what shall the harvest be? What will the harvest be? In our church. What will the harvest be? In your heart. What will the harvest be? In your home. It will depend. On whether or not. You appropriate the resources necessary to live in unity and peace. And remember, you have everything that you need. You have the ability to confront sin. You have the ability to forgive sin and be restored. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, as we look into the heart of Paul, as he tenderly, with such tenderness and courage, is creating an atmosphere and a, and a church where people love one another, where they care about one another, where they encourage one another, <laughs> where, they're, where they're nice to one another. And when they're not nice, that there's a remedy, that the problem can be solved, and that people can be restored, and reconciliation can take place. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a church that is healthy and whole and well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.